Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com or at filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Welcome to episode 16. This is the final episode for July of 2020. I can't believe that I've A, recorded this many episodes of Watch with Jen. There's been even more of Watch with Jen and Friends. And B, that you guys are actually listening to and seem to be enjoying them. It is incredibly gratifying. And you have no idea how flattered I am and honored that you are tuning in every week or maybe not every week for some of you but at least listening to more than a couple which is just amazingly kind and I hope you are entertained by what we serve up on Watch with Jen and Watch with Jen and Friends. One interesting thing that I've discovered recently is that although I do list where you can watch a lot of these movies that I'm recommending on Watch with Jen, for the most part, at least this is what I'm hearing from those of you who send me messages or let me know in DMs or on Twitter, etc. You're basically just renting these whenever you hear about them because obviously not everybody has all of these different services available to them. And it seems like you're really down with just renting movies if they sound interesting to you and hopefully you're digging them or digging enough of them to keep doing so. So this week I have a few that are available for free on some services or a couple subscription places but I also have a couple you might have to rent if they sound appealing to you. So I hope that's okay. And with that in mind, we'll just jump right in. Last month, I did an episode on time travel in the movies that was inspired by one of my patrons, Jacob Rivera, who suggested the topic. He was a $10 patron and each month could send me three to five different topic ideas for me to potentially do an episode or a segment on. And this month just kind of let me choose from last month's leftover topics. They were all very interesting. So what I did was instead of just opt for one of them and do a segment on, I thought I would talk about a few of them in the guise of a movie that qualifies for each topic. So that's what I'm doing this week and I'll introduce the topics and these films. The first one is from Jacob. He suggested gunslinging westerns. I love a good western, especially classic westerns, but also the ones I grew up with in the 90s. And this week I found myself wanting to revisit The Quick and the Dead by Sam Raimi which came out in 1995. This one is available on a service I'm completely unfamiliar with called like Fubo, F-U-B-O, which says it's subscription only. So if some of you guys have that, it's there for you to watch. I also see via Just Watch, a cool app that lets you know where to find everything, that The Quick and the Dead is also available on DirecTV, so you might be able to find it there as well. 
I have noticed that Just Watch isn't 100%. Sometimes it says things are available and they are not. So take some of these with a grain of salt. Also, I don't know when you're listening, so things might have come off the streaming services that I recommend you watch them on, etc. But we're jumping in with The Quick and the Dead. Again, it is Sam Raimi. I actually have a big memory of seeing this one in the theater. I remember being entertained by it. I went with a friend, but it was what happened after the movie that makes it really stick in my mind. Namely, while I was in the theater, my mom was like killing some time because, you know, I would have been 14 at the time. So she brought my friend and I there and she went to the video store and picked me up some movies as she used to do all the time because I've the greatest mom. And one of the movies she decided to rent for me was The Godfather, which amazingly I had not seen at this point. I'd seen all the like big Scorsese films, Raging Bull, Taxi Driver, Goodfellas, those types of movies. But it took me until 14, obviously, for me to see The Godfather, and it completely blew my mind. But I remember distinctly coming home from watching Sharon Stone take care of business in the West and then going right into watching Michael Corleone get sucked into his family business in The Godfather. So I have a far clearer memory of watching that film for the first time, but since it was a weird double feature, every time somebody has mentioned The Quick and the Dead, it brings me right back to then. But anyway, let's focus on Raimi's film. It's a play on Sergio Leone westerns, especially like the Dollars trilogy, you know, Fistful of Dollars for a few dollars more. Those were inspired by Sanjuro, Yojimbo, which are great samurai movies with Toshiro Mifune made by Akira Kurosawa that I can't recommend enough. And this movie kind of is a fun little update of that. It's a revisionist Western. So this one is about a female gunfighter who rides into the town of Redemption. It's a frontier town run by Gene Hackman who's a rich, corrupt man, a guy who takes like half of every dollar that people legitimately earn. And the citizens have had enough. They've tried to take him on before hiring outside gunfighters to come in town and try to whack Gene Hackman, but it never goes their way. They have pulled together money for a shootist to take him out. It's during a quick draw competition that is taking place when Sharon Stone rides into town. She is not the shootist that has been hired, but she is a woman who's out for revenge for reasons that become gradually through flashbacks pretty clear as the movie continues. Also entering the contest is Leonardo DiCaprio, who was just a pup when this thing was made. It was post What's Eating Gilbert Grape and This Boy's Life. It was also the same year that he made Basketball Diaries. Interestingly enough, he plays a character called The Kid, who we find out is the son of Gene Hackman, who is a quick draw artist in his own right and tired of being under the old man's shadow. Sam Rockwell was 
actually in the lead to play the kid. He auditioned for the role and did very well. The studio at the time was seriously dubious about Leonardo DiCaprio, but Sharon Stone, who's a producer on the film, knew that he was right for the role and actually paid his salary herself. This wasn't the only actor that Sharon Stone handpicked for the movie. She'd also seen the movie Romper Stomper, which was a brilliant, visceral, blistering movie from Australia that came out in 1992 featuring Russell Crowe, and it blew her mind. She was super intimidated and impressed, as you would be if you watched the film, by Russell Crowe and wanted him for this film. Knew that he had a really powerful presence and went to bat for him as well. So she chose, essentially, her two leading men, besides, of course, Hackman, who Nobody is going to say, oh, I don't want Gene Hackman for that. 1995 was also the year that Sharon Stone was in Casino. So this was a big year for her and for DiCaprio. And it was before Crow would become like a sensation in the U.S. leading up to, of course... LA Confidential and the work he did in the late 90s. The movie was shot in old Tucson right here in Arizona. It was scripted by Simon Moore who wrote the really really worthwhile BBC miniseries Traffic. That is T-R-A-F-F-I-K, not Traffic with a C, which is the Steven Soderbergh adaptation of said miniseries that he made in 2000. It's the same subject, the same film, but the BBC miniseries is richer, it's worldlier, it is just highly recommended, and you should really check it out. Simon Moore wrote the script. He was kind of pulled for a moment. John Sayles was put on and did a pass, but then when they brought Simon Moore back on, he basically deleted all of the stuff that John Sayles had done, which sounds like sacrilege if you love John Sayles as much as I do. But I guess he was brought on to give it sort of a more authentic Western vibe. Keep in mind, this was post-Unforgiven, so they were trying to infuse some of the Westerns coming out in the 90s with a little more realism, but it, I guess, bogged the action down a bit. So Simon sort of got rid of those sales contributions. Another person who was uncredited, but who worked on the script, was Joss Whedon from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. He, just like in Speed, which if you know his screenwriting and you watch Speed, you can even identify the lines that have that sort of Whedon-esque quality to them. And this one does have a few that stick out where you're like, that was probably Joss. It is not a masterpiece. I do have to preface this by saying that. But the reason I'm recommending it and why I think you should give it another shot, I mean, this was my first time watching it since 1995, was because it's an interesting commentary on the rich, especially with a Trumpian villain in the form of Gene Hackman. Some of the things that come out of his mouth, you could just immediately hear 
Donald Trump saying. And it makes us want to live vicariously through Sharon Stone and Russell Crowe and Leonardo DiCaprio, everybody who is up against Hackman all the more. And made this one far more entertaining this time than it probably would have been, especially watching it in a pandemic where you're just furious about the state of everything and the fact that there is no plan. It has Sam Raimi's trademark dark humor that we saw in like Evil Dead, and it sort of sees him on the cusp of figuring out how to make essentially like a comic book movie, which he did with Evil Dead. And this one carries it even further, especially with some of the editing and the visual jokes, the visual effects. He did sort of take a left turn after this movie and made what I think is his best film, which is A Simple Plan. It was shot in my old home state, of Minnesota, and it's one I probably will recommend on this show. I have it written down in my list of titles to recommend, and it will be coming, but it's very dark, it's very heavy, and I thought it was time to go with The Quick and the Dead, so check this one out. Like everybody and their brother, I watched Gina Price by the Woods, The Old Guard, as soon as it hit Netflix. And it was really entertaining, but the film had a weird side effect for me in that it made me want to watch more movies featuring its gorgeous lead, Matthias Schoenartz, the Belgian actor, especially because he's one of those actors who you know you've seen before and you know you've watched them in like a million things, but they always look different or they lose themselves in the role so completely that it takes a minute for you to see after you, you know, Google their name. You're like, he was in that for real? That's exactly what happened when I was watching The Old Guard with a friend and we're like, how do we know him? And I Googled and sure enough, the film that came up was Far From the Madding Crowd by Thomas Vinterberg, who's a Danish filmmaker. He was a co-founder of the movement Dogma 95 co-founded it with Lars von Trier, where to sort of beat their old guard of filmmaking, the movies that they were tired of seeing, they came up with all of these very strange regimented rules of commandments, so to speak. There is sort of a Christian dogma thing going through these rules. And it was an interesting film movement that brought us some excellent movies and filmmakers, including one of my favorites, Suzanne Beer. Thomas Vinterberg had, after, of course, Von Trier's Breaking the Waves, one of the biggest early dogma hits with Festin, which was released over here as The Celebration, came out in 1998. He also made another one that was nominated for an Oscar called The Hunt, in 2012 with Mads Mikkelsen. But in 2015, he made this really great movie that I remembered seeing when it came out, but it wasn't until The Old Guard that I was like, yes, that was good. I barely remember Matthias Schoenart's in it and decided to revisit it, which is far from the Madden crowd, which is based on the novel by 
Thomas Hardy. It's a rare Thomas Hardy novel in that it makes you not want to die at the end of it. <laughs> so, you know, the guy wrote Jude the Obscure and Tess of the Durbervilles and all of these novels that by the end of it, you're just like, oh my God, they're so depressing. If you, even if you haven't read Jude the Obscure, if you watch the adaptation of the film that was with Kate Winslet and Jude Law, you will be devastated for days at the end of that. So this was a rare one for Thomas Hardy where it's actually, I mean, some depressing shit happens. It is Thomas Hardy, but it's probably what you could say like would be the Hardy novel or the Hardy film adaptation that is most going to appeal to Jane Austen fans. I mean, Bronte fans could definitely handle it, you know, but this one would probably appeal to those. It's a gorgeous adaptation. This is one you're going to have to rent, by the way. Kind of buried that lead. Apologize. It stars Carrie Mulligan, who I think is one of her generation's greatest stars greatest actresses. She was in this amazing film called An Education, which was directed by one of the Dogma filmmakers, Lone Skurfig, who directed Italian for Beginners. So Carrie Mulligan was no stranger to working with Dogma filmmakers. She must be a fan of the Danes good on Carrie. The film also, besides of course Schoenarts, Michael Sheen, who's another amazing mesmerizing actor and Tom Sturridge. So it has quite the pedigree. Interestingly enough, this sort of follows the same through line of Sharon Stone picking her gorgeous leads. Carrie Mulligan in an interview said she handpicked Matthias Schoenarts after watching him in the French film Rust and Bone. And while that fact has been a little bit disputed, other people took credit for saying no, they chose Schoenarts. Whatever the case, those two, Schoenarts and Mulligan, have just the best chemistry in this film. It was adapted from the Hardy novel by David Nichols, who is a novelist. He adapted his own novels, Starter for Ten and One Day, for the big screen. He also is no stranger to adapting great literature. He wrote a BBC adaptation of Great Expectations and also threw his hat in the ring when it comes to adapting Thomas Hardy. He wrote a BBC miniseries version of Tessa the Durbervilles. So he knew his way around Hardy. The movie is set in about 1870s Britain. Carrie Mulligan plays Bathsheba Everdeen, a headstrong young woman who goes from working on her aunt's farm to inheriting a farm of her own from a late uncle, and she leaves that residence to take care of it. The film centers on three very different men who are all drawn to Bathsheba over a few years for different reasons. There is Gabriel Oak, which is Matthias Schoenarts, her old neighbor when she was just a penniless farm girl, who through Hardy-esque rotten luck becomes penniless himself just as her star begins to rise. She later hires him on her farm, so she becomes his boss lady, which is a total switch because 
when they had known each other previously, he had proposed. It was kind of like, hi, I like the look of you. I'm going to propose, which is, I guess, how it went down back then. And she even told him that she was too independent and he wouldn't be able to tame her. And so that's kind of a thing that goes through their relationship. At the same time that he is working on her farm, she encounters a soldier who had his heart broken and is now very cynical and jaded. And he is just one of those smooth, gorgeous seducers that should always stay away from ladies. You know, if they're a little too smooth, why are they that smooth, basically? So, and even Gabriel kind of warns her, and of course, she just assumes he might be jealous, but maybe the guy knows a thing or two about this guy, Frank Troy, played by Tom Sturridge. Maybe not. Another man in Bathsheba's life is William Boltwood, a well-to-do, slightly older, more studious bachelor, played by Michael Sheen. It's kind of hard. It's sort of the Sophie's choice of who would any heterosexual woman choose. It's like, do you want Michael Sheen that day, or do you want Matthias Schoenarts? I mean, why not both? No, I'm just kidding. But she has to choose between these two men, and also Sturridge. All of these men love her for different reasons, and she has varying relationships with all of them. It's just a really fascinating movie about, of course, the perils of timing when it comes to romance, which I think all of us know is like 90% of it, essentially. Also geography, like who's near you at the time or who's free at the time. And sometimes that isn't the best way to decide who you should be with. Mulligan is amazing in this movie and the actors, especially Schoenarts and Sheen, are equally good. It's a moving film. It's not anywhere near as lightweight as a Jane Austen work. You're not going to sit there and laugh the whole time. I mean, it is Thomas Hardy, but no, 90% of the children in the movie don't die like in Jude the Obscure, that kind of thing. So don't worry about that. But it is one that you're going to be able to handle. I actually have not seen the very famous Far From the Madding Crowd with Julie Christie and Alan Bates that came out in the late 60s. I know that was very famous and well regarded. So I am looking forward to giving that one a whirl as well. But it was really cool to go back and rewatch this movie that I remember really enjoying in 2015 when I first saw it. But I watched it this time and just absolutely loved it. I remembered one twist but had no idea of the rest of the movie. If you know Thomas Hardy's work and you're like, Jen, just for the love of God, I can't sit through a Thomas Hardy. You're okay. Far from the matting crowd will be fine. I promise. So that is my solemn oath to all English majors or lovers of English literature. You are fine to watch this one if you are unfamiliar with how the action plays out. So I do hope you will check out Far From the Madding Crowd and let me know what you think. Makes a really interesting double feature with the old guard. 
Okay, so I basically have a rule. If you're using songs by artists that get played a lot in film, like Jeff Buckley or U2, you have to use their music well. Like it needs to deserve those songs. If you're playing with or without you, which we've heard like 87 times in the movies, you need to earn that song. And this movie does. I'm talking about Tell No One, which was made in France in 2006, came out in the United States in 07 or 08, depending on the festival release or when it eventually played in the theaters. And not only does this movie nail With or Without You by U2, it also figures out a worthy way of playing Lilac Wine by Jeff Buckley, which I have a big problem with mishandling Jeff Buckley. Oh my gosh, that is one of my cardinal sins. Like if you're using the angelic voice of Jeff Buckley, and you drop the freaking ball, like, your movie is losing a half star in my mind. I don't even really give movies ratings except on Letterboxd, but let's just say, like, you're getting a cold shoulder from me, man, if you botch Jeff Buckley. So the fact that this movie uses both U2 and Jeff Buckley effectively is just pretty amazing, especially when you consider just how damn good it is, music aside. It's based upon a book by Harlan Coben, who's a thriller writer. The movie actually made some big changes to the book, including the identity of the killer. And, you know, to his credit, man, Harlan Coben actually preferred the ending of the film. And I don't know how you wouldn't. It is one of Michael Caine's favorite movies, which is just totally random trivia. The movie has nothing to do with Michael Caine. But when I stumbled upon it on movie, and I had not seen this film since like 2008, that was what they were leading with, has the distinction of being one of Michael Caine's favorite films. I thought, wow, like there is some unexpected trivia. So wanted to pass that along to you. Not only is Tell No One available on Mubi, it is also to be found in Hoopla. And I've got to say, I would go with Hoopla. If your library has access to it, watch it there. Because I tried to watch this thing on Mubi, and this has happened before with that service, where you get Buffer City going on, like, within a half hour. And it's always, like, in a foot chase. Or, you know, just as some big revelation comes about where you're like, no way! Like, that's when it starts to buffer or you see the, what I like to call the spinning wheel of death just centers on the screen. And it kept happening when I was watching this on movie. And, you know, I went into my Wi-Fi settings and changed the radio channels and the wireless and yeah, I'm a nerd. But then I remembered it was on Hoopla and I thought, you know, what the hell, let's try it. And went over to Hoopla, checked it out, had zero problems. So go ahead and watch this on Hoopla. I'm sorry, Mubi, I love you, but there is something going on with your service. I don't know, because these were both 
and high definition on both services. And I don't know what was happening, but it has happened in the past with movie. So that is just my two cents. The movie is about two childhood sweethearts turned man and wife, Dr. Alex Beck, who's played by Francois Clouzet, and his wife Margot, played by Marie-Josie Crozet, who go for a moonlight swim on their anniversary at the start of the film. And later, he awakens to find himself alone, nude, this is post-coital, and has no idea where his wife is. Hears a scream, dives in the water, and then he's struck with a blunt object and left for dead. We find out later, because it jumps ahead eight years, that his wife was the victim of a serial killer. However, the man that they arrested, the serial killer, admitted to every single murder he had committed except for Margot's. Because Alex is the husband, he was of course suspect number one in the eyes of the police because as you know most cops like to say, it's always the husband. But you know, let's face it, most of the time it's the husband or the boyfriend or the ex. It's usually the dude in her life. And he sure enough was the prime suspect. So he has a real issue with the police and their mishandling of this case because as he says when new evidence comes to light eight years later that had they not focused on him and wasted time they could have gotten to his wife while she was still alive as i said before new evidence does come to light at the start of the film when we jump ahead eight years he is brought back into the mystery when he receives a cryptic email message with a link and ignoring all virus warnings because everyone knows if you receive some random email with a website link, you don't click on it. But hey, Dr. Alex Beck, pediatrician, is living large, so he clicks on it and he needs to to get this thing going. He finds a video that is a live streamed video of what looks like his wife, very much alive in present day, trying to figure out exactly what happened and not trusting the police to help him out here. He kind of plays detective himself. He confides in his sister-in-law, his sister's wife, played by Kristen Scott Thomas, who I love in French movies. There's something about Kristen Scott Thomas that the French bring out in her that I just think is fabulous. It's a warmth, an effervescence that she isn't asked to play enough in British Fair when she's sort of this stodgy woman. And so I've always loved her renaissance in French movies and Tell No One is indicative of that for sure. So Dr. Alex Beck confides in his sister-in-law he also finds himself needing the help of a hoodlum in the form of the father of one of his patients, who's a gangster in the underworld in France, because sure enough, he is suspect number one in some new crimes that the police start to zero in on him, and he books it in order to try to follow up and find his wife 
who may or may not be alive. It is a fast-paced, very twisty thriller. I love twisty thrillers, and yeah, I mean, this one is a little bit convoluted in places, of course, but it really works. Even if you might start to suspect how points A and B line up, like what is the connecting thread and who is maybe playing both sides, that kind of thing. This film has so many twists ahead of you that there is no way you're going to figure this one out. And I really respect that about Tell No One. It also stars the filmmaker, Guillaume Canet, who is a talented French actor in his own right. And what's interesting about Canet is that he could easily be France's leading man or their Tom Cruise, so to speak, if he decided to just play it that way. But he wanted to make movies and oh my god, does he have talent. He has such a keen visual sense. It's something that I noticed in Tell No One in another film that he made in the States called Blood Ties with Clive Owen and his partner, who is Marion Cotillard. He has a really strong, bold way of telling the story, relying on visuals alone rather than exposition or taking shortcuts with dialogue. He makes it exciting. He makes it visceral. And I think he is an extraordinarily talented filmmaker. So I do encourage you to track down Tell No One, either on movie, if you want to chance it. Hey, maybe you don't ever have a problem with this program, and that's great. Hoopla, or it's also available to rent on several different retailers. So you should have no problem finding Tell No One. There's something about living in a pandemic that is making everybody want to seek out dystopian fare. And sure enough, that was another topic suggested by Jacob Rivera to go ahead and focus on dystopian movies. Interesting thing, though, was I did find myself wanting to revisit I Am Legend. I haven't done that yet, but I did rewatch 28 Days Later for the first time since screenwriting class in what, like 2003, 2004. And that was eerie and very prescient. But the one that I first hit play on, that again, just like Far From the Madding Crowd, I remembered liking, but it had been so long that I barely remembered it, was Seeking a Friend for the End of the World, which you can find right now on Star's channel. It came out in 2012 from writer-director Lorene Scafaria. This was her feature filmmaking debut. She was a screenwriter who co-wrote like Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. She also wrote and directed The Meddler and last year's water cooler movie, Hustlers, which was very good as well. That's on Showtime. I'm just throwing that out there. If you've not seen Hustlers or want to give it another watch, jump over to Showtime and do that. But Seeking a Friend for the End of the World is a dark comedy. It was actually inspired by Scafaria's memories 
of 9-11. And in preparing for the script, she started to revisit those epic disaster movies like 2012 and Day After Tomorrow. And I think that's why this movie, although it is, like I say, a dark comedy, just feels so very, very real. In the film, Steve Carell and Kira Knightley play a pair of strangers who meet and form an unexpected bond as they look for peace and closure before a 70-mile-wide asteroid wipes out all life on Earth. Carell is Dodge Peterson, who is reminiscing about his high school sweetheart when he sees his neighbor Penny, played by Kira Knightley, crying after breaking up with her boyfriend, played by Adam Brody, who I guess actually gave Scafaria some very valuable notes on the screenplay to insert sort of the male perspective into the film. When the two start to chat, Penny, Kira Knightley, returns three years of mail that has wrongly been delivered to her address. And in it, he discovers that his wife, Linda, who bailed on him, It's actually played by his wife, Nancy, and the scene where she does, like, bolt from his car was shot on the Carell's 17th wedding anniversary, which I find hilarious. But anyway, in the film, Dodge finds out his wife, Linda, who bailed on him, was having an affair based on this old male that Penny had been hoarding. And he also discovers that his high school sweetheart that he was just madly in love with still feels the same or felt the same and decides that he is going to do whatever it takes and track her down. Meanwhile, Penny is mad at her boyfriend for not letting her go to her family in England and will do whatever it takes for her to get the hell out of the U.S. and return to England. Carell says he knows somebody who could fly her, and he wants her help in tracking down his high school love. So they hit the road together and, of course, you know, wind up forming a bond on their own. And what I love about this is probably the same thing that inspires me about movies like Lost in Translation. I am a sucker for those films where people that you would never expect to hit it off just come together and find each other, and this is one of them, so it kind of plays to my romantic side for sure, but also the dark humor. It's not too sugary or too saccharine. So there is a gritty undertone to this movie. I mean, it is dark. Like for the first 20 or 30 minutes, you might be like, what am I watching? This is too depressing. Like what was Jen thinking recommending this during a pandemic? But stick with it because it's moving in a very surprising way. And I think, and again, just like playing Jeff Buckley and you too this movie achieves like the most genuine beautiful needle drop on film for the air that i breathe by hollies which 
It is not an easy song to get right without it being like cheesy, let's just say. But this one, if it doesn't make you have like a little bit of tears coming down or at least like, oh man, when they play the air that I breathe late into the third act, you might be dead. You might need to be resuscitated because you might not have a heart. It really gets me. And I don't want to spoil everything by telling you exactly what happens. Sure, some of the twists are a little bit predictable, that kind of thing. But I think this will also appeal to those who, like me, love the movie Miracle Mile, the Stephen Desjarnat film, which was with Mare Winningham and Anthony Edwards which is another one that's sort of finding love just as the world is going to end because, of course, and that sort of also taps into not only my romantic side, but my cynical romantic side. So if you liked Miracle Mile, you will want to seek this one out and vice versa. If you enjoyed Seeking a Friend for the End of the World, do check out Miracle Mile as well. Scafaria as she did in Hustlers, knows her way around a soundtrack and knows how to use music effectively, not only with the air that I breathe, is full of just staggeringly great songs, which are worked into the script, like it's not just bull, because Penny is a vinyl collector. So she's always carrying records with her. So the songs that are worked in are songs you probably could find in her music collection. So it is somewhat natural. It's not just a conceit of a super cool record or music producer for the film, but it really enhances the experience and adds to the humanism because there's something so universal about not only love, but music. And although, yes, of course, Corel is too old for Kira Knightley, if you're going down that long list of cliches we always see in movies, I personally did not mind it. Again, it sort of had that lost in translation thing of, yes, Bill Murray is too old for Scarlett Johansson, but their chemistry is so oddly right that it actually works, I think. So do overlook that if you're one to get overly cynical on that kind of thing. And it's easy to do. Like if you watch as many movies as I do, you know, by the fifth, you're like, okay, they're always with the uber younger babe. This one, I am far more willing to forgive because similar to the way that Corel is used so effectively in Dan in real life, which I recommended a few weeks ago, the same thing fits here where he sneaks up on you as a surprising and really great leading man that I think had he chosen better or had Hollywood given him more of a chance and had romantic comedies been in vogue more than they are except for some of the real scatological ones or the Seth Rogen ones, I think Steve Carell could have had a little bit of a Tom Hanks career in that category. So I'm going to the mat and saying, yeah, he can be a romantic leading man. Why the hell not? So enjoy seeking a friend for the end of the world. 
Our fifth film today is one of my favorites, definitely a Johans family favorite, Gross Point Blank, which came out in 1997. It is currently available to be watched for free on Vudu. Unfortunately, that does mean that there are commercials, but it is uncut, so you are getting the full film as it was played in the theater back in 97. It was written by Tom Jankowitz, based on a story by Jankowitz. I hope I'm saying that correctly. It was also co-written by D.V. DeVincentis, Steve Pink, and John Cusack, who stars in the film. Gross Point Blank was directed by George Armitage, who directed Miami Blues, which is a movie that I just rewatched last week, inspired by my friend Travis Woods, who you've probably heard, or if not, you should go ahead and listen to that episode of Watch with Jen and Friends, because he is a character and just one of my favorite people. So I think you will really enjoy Travis. He didn't talk about the movie on the episode, but just knowing Travis and he had written a really great essay for Brightwall Dark Room on Miami Blues. So I rewatched it and that made me look it up and discover that George Armitage the filmmaker behind Miami Blues had directed Gross Point Blank, which is, like I said, one of my family's favorites. Like to this day, my dad will just quote this movie at the drop of a hat. It cracks me up. And it's kind of cool because it is sort of a family affair in a way. It stars John Cusack. It was co-written by John Cusack. And it co-stars John's sister's Joan Cusack, Anne Cusack, even Bill Cusack has a little role. So there's four Cusacks for the price of one, essentially. It also stars Minnie Driver, who I adore, Alan Arkin, Dan Aykroyd, Jeremy Piven, Hank Azaria, and kind of a recurring theme for this episode is great use of music. This is an all-timer. There was a period in the late 90s where we received so many films in theaters that were about 10-year high school reunions, and all of them featured just killer songs from the 80s. But I think this movie did it the best. And then I would probably say Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion, which came out a few years later. It's also one I love. Weirdly, both movies were made under the Disney umbrella, which is strange and I haven't fully figured it out why, but maybe they had the money to pay for these amazing soundtracks? I don't know. The film's music, the score, was composed by Joe Strummer of The Clash, so it has that going for it in addition to just like needle drop after needle drop of just killer music. The film is a dark comedy, sort of a neo-noir comedy or crime comedy. In it, Cusack, who I kind of think took his role in The Grifters to heart and sort of got a darker sensibility, or maybe it was always there. Maybe there was a dangerous side of John Cusack that we just didn't see underneath his facade of just adorable niceness in Say Anything. But the 90s found him sort of embracing that, the misanthropic side of John Cusack, if you will, like you could watch 
the grifters and then gross point blank and then leading into high fidelity there is a darkness there and it becomes him i think i think it's a richer cusack than some filmmakers were able to bring up in his performances and this has always been one of my favorite roles that cusack has ever played he stars as a hitman martin blank who is disillusioned and dejected he's been you know just killing people for too long and starting to find the pursuit pretty empty as one would do his rival in the hitman trade is Dan Aykroyd, who is the grocer. At the same time, he is invited to his 10-year high school reunion in his hometown of Gross Point, Michigan. I'm not exactly sure how they managed to track him down and send him an invitation to this 10-year high school reunion, especially because when he arrives in Michigan, which he goes to sort of grudgingly because there's a job that he needs to do that's in the same area, and he's also obsessed with this high school reunion, but everybody keeps approaching him as, you know, the city's most famous disappearing act and nobody knew where he was so it's like how did he get an invitation but don't look too hard into that just kind of throw it in the back of your mind like whatever they somehow found him he arrives in gross point to take stock of his life check in on his mom who is in a senior care home she has some dementia and also catch up with his high school girlfriend who as his shrink played by Alan Arkin says he was pretty obsessed with and that is Minnie Driver. I mean who would not be obsessed with the just adorable Minnie Driver and so he looks her up right away. She is a DJ which kind of helps give a reason for just wall-to-wall excellent music through the entire film and as he starts to try to revisit a relationship with her he finds that grocer who's played by again Dan Aykroyd has followed him to town to try to snag this latest job out from under him. There are too many threads to tie together in this little summary but it's just great fun watching them all come together in this movie. Weirdly just like we were flooded with high school reunion movies. This came after Pulp Fiction when we had a lot of too cool for school hitman movies in the 90s. But I think this is one of the best post-Tarantino ones that we received because while a couple shots actually do mimic Pulp Fiction, this is definitely its own thing. It is a hitman movie made by Chicagoans or people that are familiar with the Second City comedy side of Chicago. I mean, all the people coming out of here that were Second City or SNL related. It's just really, really funny, really inventive. And I mean, 
I shouldn't have to sell you on Gross Point Blank. Hopefully you've heard of this movie. Hopefully you've even seen it. But having just watched Miami Blues and looked up George Armitage, I was reminded by the fact that he in the 90s made two really good crime comedy films. And this is, of course, his masterpiece, I would say. But interestingly enough, making Miami Blues led to his handling of this. He knew he wanted to keep it short. And spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Miami Blues, go ahead and fast forward this like 10 or 15 seconds starting now. Armitage talked about how upset everyone was when he killed off Alec Baldwin at the end of Miami Blues. So his rule for Gross Point Blank was... John Cusack, man, he was going to have to live. So this also ties into a theme that Jacob Rivera sent me, which was the bad guy gets away with it. Because, I mean, although it is John Cusack and there really isn't somebody more likable to play a hitman, he is a hitman and he is a nihilist and a cynic and a misanthrope and morally flexible, I think was the phrase he uses in the film. So even though he is our anti-hero, in a weird way, you'd have to say that, yeah, the bad guy does get away with it. The hitman lives. But I think you'll agree that he needed to. And it's a film that a lot of people have a lot of affection for, and none more so than those who are in it. I always get very wary of snitch taggers on Twitter, which is when you're talking about a film and somebody replies and they copy the filmmaker or the actor who's in the movie just to like alert them to the fact that somebody is talking about your movie. And this happened to me with Gross Point Blank. Like, I don't know, a year ago I rewatched the film and I just did a mini thread. And I only talked about a few things and somebody found this thread like way later and alerted Mini Driver to it. And I felt so bad because I only talked about like X, Y, and Z, so I didn't really even talk about Minnie Driver's role in the movie. And she actually though loved the thread, she retweeted it, and started to tell me some stories about Gross Point Blank on Twitter. She talked about it being a film that was the hardest one to end, and that they loved each other so much that the actors everybody involved actually went on vacation together after they wrapped to try to keep the relationships and the friendships going and how it fostered a closeness that is still felt to this day about this film. So it's one that she kind of values above all others, which I thought was really moving. And it's a genuine affability that she brings to the role and that they all do. And it's cool to know that that was real. It wasn't just put on. They weren't like two people who hated each other making a movie, her and John Cusack, that they were that tight and everybody involved was. So that was a really cool thing. I'd say still don't snitch tag, you guys. It's not cool. But in this one instance, it was okay, even if I was a little embarrassed because I didn't talk about every single aspect of the film, including Minnie, but Minnie was so kind and generous and just a joy to interact with for like 
a few days there on Twitter talking about Girls Point Blank. It actually wasn't my first time interacting with her. We talked about another one of her films. I don't even think I was snitch tagged into that then. I think she just must have looked it up or stumbled upon it or whatever. So she is somebody who really cares about her work and I think that shows in her performances. They are filled with integrity and this movie really does live or die by the cast. It could be a little too cool for school otherwise, but when you have people like Joan Cusack or Dan Aykroyd in one sequence like getting so into it he doesn't blink for like two minutes, it just raises the bar of everyone. So I can't recommend you pulling up Gross Point Blank on Voodoo or wherever you have it. Hopefully you own the movie because it plays really well as a summer comedy when things are hot and also when we need a distraction like right now. So I want to thank you again for listening to this episode of Watch with Jen. Just to recap, today I talked about The Quick and the Dead, which you can find on Fubo, DirecTV, or via rental. Far From the Madding Crowd is one you're going to have to rent on VOD. Tell No One is available on Mubi or Hoopla or also rental. Seeking a Friend for the End of the World is on Stars, and Gross Point Blank is available on Voodoo. I hope you guys have a great rest of your week. Take care, and I will talk to you soon. Happy movie watching. I am Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com or FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd, and this is Watch with Jen.